Stone saw it and swore. That does it, he said. We're trapped here, and if that bomb goes off, it will spread the organism all over the surface. There will be a thousand mutations, each killing in a different way. We'll never be rid of it. Over the loudspeaker, a flat mechanical voice was saying, The level is closed. The level is closed. This is an emergency. The level is closed. There was a moment of silence, and then a scratching sound as a new recording came on, and Miss Gladys Stevens of Omaha, Nebraska said quietly, There are now three minutes to automatic self-destruct. So says Michael Crichton in The Andromeda Strain. Welcome back to Literary Guys. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. It is a rainy night outside the Stardust today. It is kind of nuts. It's positively gross. I wish I was trapped several substations underground. So which level is your favorite level? Like if you had to rate them. Which level does the suppositories come in? Well, it happens at least once on the way down, but then it just keeps happening in the lower level, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Well, then there you go. There's your answer. Okay. Well, I think we have reached the end of this novel. Mm -hmm. We are kind of digging into this climactic moment where this book that is really an excuse to have ASCII graphs of many pointless things comes to a head in a very unexpected dramatic action sequence. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic close to a novel, I think, and it really does kind of come out of nowhere, but at the same time, I think it feels earned. This image of someone climbing a ladder in this like auxiliary Jeffrey's tube, if I want to cross my references here. I love it. We're already dealing with a crystalline entity here. This is true. So there's a lot of Star Trek going on beneath the surface. But this idea of climbing up this ladder and that there's lasers and these poison darts which are meant to slow down the monkeys Mm -hmm. that I think they were afraid were going to escape if I'm not misremembering this. Right. Like, that's a pretty horrific sort of scene. It's almost hearkening back to a novel that we both hated in season one of Literary Guys, which was Nothing Lasts Forever, the inspiration, of course, for Die Hard. The difference being when he does finally reach his desired level and sees a woman, he doesn't immediately machine gun her to death. Well, it's strange because if you would listen to that book, you would assume that that was normal human behavior. (laughs) But apparently Michael Crichton is living in an alternate universe where we actually treat people with respect and humanity. I do want to talk about this ending because I do think it's fantastic and kind of makes the read well worth it. But one of the things I think I may have shortchanged this novel on when we were talking about it last week is, you know, some of its more antiquated ideas, some of Mm -hmm. the stuff that hasn't aged very well, the graphs, the notion that single men are the only capable decision makers in our society. I do think it gets something very right that is very pertinent to the here and now. We see a lot of government ineptitude in the face of a potential global pandemic. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think various world governments at various times during this most recent COVID-19 outbreak showed where a breakdown in bureaucracy, a lack of forthright decision making, a lack of taking something seriously or maybe even perhaps taking it too seriously at first and wearing people out on it has caused a lot of problems for different countries. And I Mm -hmm. think it's interesting that we've got a novel well before this 
most recent outbreak that I think got a lot right in terms of how governments might break down and might fail the citizenry in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it's the disconnect that I think has existed. And in real life, we've seen echo what's in this book, which is that you need politicians and bureaucrats who understand the idea that science is often imperfect. And Mm. science is about Mm -hmm. learning. It's about changing. It's not about oftentimes immediately being able to arrive at absolute truth. And that's highly uncomfortable. That's not what politicians in particular are taught as to how to engage with people. You want to be the person who is always right. Right. You don't want to be the person who, heaven forbid, questions your own beliefs on a constant basis to make sure that you are seeing the truth for what it is. And it's interesting, too, that one of those areas where that really comes to head, uh, one of the scientists outside of the uh, wildfire compound has been tasked with being, I guess, the liaison to the president mm-hmm. and trying to get the president to act on the scientists within wildfires recommendation that they nuke Piedmont, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And the president doesn't want to. They him and they haw. That's never actually done. And as it turns out, thank goodness it wasn't. They would have been wrong. This is a virus Mm -hmm. that I had forgotten this plot detail that mutates in high intensity radiation. And they would essentially just spread it if they would have nuked the site. To me, that's just fascinating that we've got these scientists who are just in a way proving the stereotype that I think, like you mentioned, a lot of politicians would have about scientists proving it right, at least in that scenario where science in some respects can be a little bit more of an art where there is some nuance and there is room to grow and learn. And your first conclusion is not always the correct one. And it's interesting that, you know, we've seen that with the COVID pandemic and we see that here on a much grander scale in the Andromeda strain. Well, we've also seen it in Crystal's evolution of the cocktail that we've been enjoying as we've talked about this book. Because I think it did start off as actually containing Sterno. But now I think it's got like Louis the Thirteenth brandy in it now as a replacement. So I think she's really up-leveled this thing. I really don't want to see the bill on this one. She was still squeezing it through a cheesecloth, though, mm-hmm. like hobos used to do with actual Sterno. So I'm not fully convinced. No, I think she just has that as part of the uh, preparation. She does that with other cocktails. Like, I see that with martinis as well. So let's back up a little bit here as we're talking about mistakes that the scientists made or ill-fated conclusions that they had, that there were two things in the final sequence of this book which came into play. One was about the epilepsy of one of the characters that could have been mistaken for actually having contracted the disease, which uh, he had not. It it was foreshadowed many times that there was something afoot here. That was something that I think someone without a scientific mind would have immediately become afraid of and assumed that they'd been infected and all those things. But then the second incorrect assumption was that the Andromeda strain was still deadly. There's this point where we know that whatever it is about this bacteria or whatever, this crystalline structure, that it degrades certain rubber and plastics. And that's what happened with the airplane that flew over and many other things that happened earlier in the book, that we had the seals break down in the chamber where tests were being run on the two infected patients. And the assumption was, well, he's going to die. 
And so he wanted to be injected with like this super potent antibacterial agent that would pretty much kill off everything in his body and would make him reliant upon it for life in order to continue to sustain. But it was, again, the scientists rethinking the assumptions they had made about the behavior of it and realizing that at that point it wasn't even about the elevated pH of the blood that made it toxic to so many people in the town, but it had actually mutated beyond that point. It was no longer deadly, even without the heavy breathing or whatever it was that had caused that in the first place. Which, interestingly enough, they would have known that the virus was mutating had they gotten news of the, uh, I think it was a phantom, Air Force Phantom that crashed when the, uh, the rubber and plastics dissolved within the plane. Had they read the news reports that were coming in continuously, but no one, none of these scientific minds thought to ever read the data that's just like spewing out on that scrambler typewriter in the corner. Well, this is so often the problem with science, though. Like, we're ultimately within the constraints of human beings that have finite attention, that have finite time, and we're asking them to make very important decisions and insights. So often you have to choose the information that you're going to incorporate and synthesize into the conclusions that you make. It would be great if you could do all of these things and have access to infinite information, but that's not the case. And that's often why you see large research teams working on a problem, because individuals within it will specialize in particular views of a problem so that you get that synthesis. When you look at this, when you essentially have four people working in isolation, Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that that's an outcome here. Do you think that if there were a real-world application of the Wildfire Project today, there would be some kind of sense of uh, having a more egalitarian group, not just four white men? Have we evolved enough as a society where people would recognize and realize that diversity of thought would be key to any of these outcomes? I would certainly hope so. I mean, I, I feel like this would be a basic question that would be asked these days. Like, the demographics of this are not good. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we've learned a lot about scientific progress. You know, we're so obsessed with this idea of a sole inventor or sometimes a duo of people who make great breakthroughs. That's so seldom the case that they're not supported by large groups of other people as well in order to make things happen. In this case, we've got some sort of kludgy uh, robotics helping out these scientists in certain circumstances, and that's it. That doesn't map to reality at all. I think what you would see is an argument made for a larger group of people Mm -hmm. to be somehow involved. Yes, that's going to mean more suppositories. You can't escape it. But I think that's how you get to diversity of thought because there's so many different aspects of that. I just think that it's unrealistic that you would choose four people for this. I think I I couldn't imagine with attacking a big problem like this with so much information coming in that you wouldn't want to have at least 10, 20 people involved in this. Yeah, and at various times in the novel, they they actually bemoan that a little bit like oh if only we had a chemist on board mm-hmm. you know it, it really does seem like this the universe of this novel is even kind of aware of the limitations of the small team that they put together mm-hmm. i totally agree there you do need however and i think this is an interesting twist on that is you do need leadership mm-hmm. this did appear to be a very purely egalitarian environment it right. seemed like stone had some additional pull, but he wasn't the sole decision maker here. Stone seemed to have pulled just by force of personality. Yes. Which, I mean, I think probably is how a lot of 
leadership roles, at least in nominally egalitarian situations, kind of come to be. You know, if you're a bunch of plane crash survivors on a desert island, it's probably going to be the man or woman who has the most forceful personality who's going to at least rise to that leadership position initially until at least their decision-making skills are compromised or they're shown to be a poor leader. But I do think there is definitely a personality type that kind of inserts themselves into those situations for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And by the end of this novel, I think he had slept with at least three of the wives of the other. <laughs> he, he was famous for doing that. They, yeah. had to, they had to keep the women on other substations just to avoid it. Actually, I, I take this back that it, only two because... The fourth person there was single, hence the odd man hypothesis. You can never forget the odd man hypothesis. So we have these great scenes at the end, and as I think I referenced in a previous episode, also this reference in the book to the fallibility Mm -hmm. of science and the things that they had overlooked, which I think was a nice twist in terms of writing here, that, again, pointing out that they didn't quite always get it right. But then we have this, like, sudden shift into this weird action mode We have the voice that you did at the opening of the episode here of the self-destruct mechanism and the need to disarm it and the poor design of the wildfire station that made it so that you could not disarm it from certain areas. Right. They had, I think, initially petitioned to have eight disarming mechanisms and there was only five in the final build and the other three were you know delayed in shipping or something like that yeah, yeah, like, yeah. it was really interesting and i did want to go back briefly to that automated voice miss gladys stevens from omaha nebraska uh-huh. because i i think that's a great example of some of the little flavor details that Crichton puts in his work that are so powerful and make the world so evocative mm-hmm. you know this was the voice that woke them up every morning and was like i guess scientifically proven to to get the best response from men in terms of waking them up. Uh, It was this very sensual, alluring voice. And we learned from one of the communications directors in the Project Wildfire that it's a 63-year-old woman who does this for a living in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because they revisit that a couple times where, you know, it's the end of the world. Their lives and probably the lives of, you know, the human race is being counted down second by second. And the guy's just thinking about how at one point this woman in the small house in Omaha, Nebraska is just recording this deadpan into a tape recorder. It's kind of this fascinating dichotomy and this morbid thought that those things really are out there you know celebrities Mm -hmm. and famous politicians have their obituaries already written before they're dead there's all these Mm -hmm. like weird little things in our society that you don't necessarily think about and i like that Crichton is able to kind of take us out of the world and kind of expose some of those real elements of the world it makes Mm -hmm. his fiction a lot richer to me it does also remind me though of jack donaghy from uh, 30 rock when his voice was captured as the perfect (laughs) american accent and yeah. then re-pieced into various audio recordings. No, it, it is interesting, and it also, in this awkward world that you spoke of, that, you know, it's, it's just a bunch of single white guys hanging around, like, this is, in some ways, the female companionship mm-hmm. in that lowest level of wildfire. I don't know, in some way, it almost speaks to the us of today. Mm-hmm. And who's Siri? Who's Cortana? I'm not going to say the other name because it'll set off a device in my house. Um, You know, these are very much the same thing. And, I mean, there was even a movie about this, uh, Her, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Really good movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Was that a Spike Jones? I think it was. Spike Jones, Joaquin Phoenix. I got to ask, Dr. McAllen, uh, is your Surrey a male voice or a female voice? That's not the one I use. 
but when it does occasionally kick in, uh, female. Okay, interesting. I have switched mine to Irish female because I find that I respond best to that. Interesting. So we've now talked about this book for a while. One of the things that I think we chatted about is we were sliding into the booth here at the Stardust right before we recorded the first episode was, is this still a good book? Hmm. And I want to put that out on the table here because, I mean, we're going to have to clear some glasses away to make room on the table. But what do you think? Like, has this book aged well? Or is there something else that people would be better spending their time doing than reading this novel? I'm loath to disparage it too much because I think, like you, Michael Crichton was such a big part of my childhood and such a profound influence on my love of reading in general. I think there are absolutely elements of this that have not aged well. Mm -hmm. There are whole swaths of the novel that I had completely forgotten, and (laughs) upon rereading them, understand why I forgot them. I think this is a very good book for when you and I read it. I think it's Mm -hmm. a really good book for that quote-unquote young adult demographic. It does present some very intriguing real-world ideas, and it does it in a very academic and informed way, at least according to 1969 or whenever this novel was written. I don't think it talks down to its audience either. It distills some really complex ideas in some very intriguing, engaging ways. And I think some of the broader questions it's trying to ask about society in general are still very relevant, especially in 2022. So I think it does have its merits. I don't think I'd be recommending this to any of my adult friends who are looking for a good thriller or who are looking for something to really sink their teeth into. Because like you said uh, a couple recording sessions ago, it's a little cotton candy-esque. It kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. It keeps you engaged, but then you don't spend any time really thinking about it afterwards. And I think most of us, as we are looking to enrich our lives, want novels that are going to stick with us, that are going to impact us, that are going to bring things that we can cull from those words, from that prose into our life in general. And I I don't think Andromeda Strain has any of that. But for something for a teenage kid to read on a beach summer vacation, I think it still stands out. How about you? So I find it difficult to argue with that assessment. Like, in some ways, this is a young adult novel, and it just isn't packaged as such. And I think the trappings of the sort of 60s-esque setting of it makes it feel sufficiently removed from the real world of today that... You can read it in that lens. Mm -hmm. I would almost say, though, like, is I do think it's an important work. It was definitely influential in a big way. Like, I would say, go watch the movie. The movie's going to give you about 70% of this. I would say, maybe go read something else by Crichton. Read Jurassic Park. Like, Jurassic Park, the reason it made such a damn good movie is it was a great book. Yeah. And as much as I could just go back and watch Dr. Ian Malcolm... And also the guy who says Dino DNA, which is like my favorite part of that movie. <laughs> is that Mr. DNA? I think it is. Yeah. Dino DNA. There's actually a lot in that book. Mm-hmm. like, it, And it does actually make more of the you know somewhat mocked chaos theory that is not well explained in the movie and actually talks more about it. And so I, I think there's some more there. There's Spear. There's... Yeah. I would say as far as like capturing the mood of this novel, the movie does a great job. The original movie. Yes. And it also has a little more diversity in as well and makes it a little easier to watch. Fun fact, it was one of the most expensive movies made at the time. Really? The the set, they actually dug a set into the ground. Um, the set, I think, was the most elaborate set that had been designed underground in the history of Hollywood. 
elaborate self-contained set, I guess is how they phrased it. And doing some of my research prior to us going live here, I found that many of those sets were reused in the Six Million Dollar Man and in one of my favorite childhood television shows growing up, Airwolf. Oh, wow. Which also has one of the best theme songs of all time. Yes, he is. I mean, this, we will not disagree. (laughs) But yeah, I think the movie does do a really good job. And, you know, for a movie without any CGI in it, it's got depictions of holograms, depictions Mm -hmm. of lasers. Robert Wise was the director. He directed West Side Story, but later went to direct, I think, Star Trek The Motion Picture, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I think did a fantastic job with Andromeda Strain. It was only a mild success when it came out, Mm -hmm. um, because I think at the time people just weren't ready for that kind of narrative storytelling. But today, I think it, it absolutely holds up. And yeah, I would recommend the movie as well. It'd be interesting down the road for literary guys to maybe do Jurassic Park or Sphere, which are two of the other Crichton novels that I remember most fondly, and see if those indeed hold up. Because I would have told you you know, a few weeks ago that Andromeda Strain was just going to be an absolute winner. And there were still some parts of it I really enjoyed, but some parts that fell flat. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if maybe Sphere especially would feel the same way. I don't know. We may have to go check it out. Actually, before we wrap things up, I've got to ask, how is Dr. Stone Macbeth? Is that what we're asking? Or are we asking if the Wildfire Project has any good bathrooms to do coke in? Oh, I think that is exactly what we're asking. What do you think? (laughs) Um, I mean, it's going to have a lot of flat, shiny surfaces. Mm -hmm. There is one level that is all white, so that would probably be a bad level to do coke in. That'd be tricky. But I think the final level is blue, if I'm not mistaken. Those white lines on a slick blue surface doesn't get much better than that. Nine out of ten. So I think the problem is, is that the automated voice of Gladys is going to be commenting and critiquing your technique. Yeah. And I don't know if they allow currency down Ooh, there. I was just so about to say, no paper. Gonna, yeah. No paper, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be the problem. Good point. Well, you know what? I think we will have to give this some further thought over a last round of cocktails after we sign off here. But We're going to have to pay for those cocktails somehow. Yeah, we will. This is a government project, sir. <laughs> Yeah, so we're definitely going to have to settle up the bill here, but I've noticed that we seem to have regressed, that we used to have this really nice point-of-sale system here at the Stardust, but now we've kind of gone back to this, like, I think there's a mainframe in the back. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Um, Actually, is this related to our sponsor this week? It is. Here's the copy. Handlebar mustaches. Miss Pac-Man. Swing revival revival bands. Catch the latest retro craze that's sweeping the nation before any of your hipster friends. 1960s science. Forget all the slick convenience of texting for the wondrous, all caps, zero punctuation splendor of a scrambler typewriter. Imagine this bulky machine clattering away in the corner of your bedroom, spewing out amalgamated data both useless and critically relevant. Spare your eyes from the HD retina displays of today in favor of green pixels on a beautiful black background. Dismiss your female and married male friends' opinions through the convenience of the odd man hypothesis. Yes, 1960s science, the same pursuit that told you nicotine was good for the bones, is back to tell you vaping is good for the soul. Don't be the odd man out in your suspenders-wearing, ironic tattoo-having friends group. Embrace 1960s science today. Well, I can only hope that 1960s science would give us some sort of, like, new viewpoint in this troubled world in which we live today. It can't be any worse than the current science we're operating with. But yeah, we're, we're excited to kind of keep things up. I think we've got a field trip coming up. Yeah, so a place that I know you have talked about immensely and I've never been to before 
is a place in the West Village called the Whitehorse Tavern. Um, and that's the West Village of Kansas City? No, that is the West Village of New York, specifically the Manhattan Borough. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go check it out. I think we're going to catch up afterwards, probably later at night, mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of see how that goes. I mean, from what you've told me, it's going to be flawless. Yeah, Dr. McCallum and I have occasion, uh, both as a man of science and myself as a writer, to take some business trips to New York. We happen to have one of those uh, overlap just a little bit, and I wanted to take him to one of my favorite literary locales on the planet Earth, the White Horse Tavern in Manhattan. It is steeped in literary history, both meaningful and tragic and everything in between. It really is a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to experience that with you and have some drinks there, talk a little bit about, mm-hmm. you know, the many famous figures who had walked through those doors at one time or another, and then who, who knows where the evening will take us? It's Manhattan. Yeah. But what is halfway between meaningful and tragic? Autoeroticism. Okay. There we go. Well, with that, I think it's time we wrap things up. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have and you have not yet left us a review, please do so. It means all the world to us here. And for folks who want to reach out to us, you know, just hit us up at Literary Guys on your social media platforms. Email us, litguys at gmail.com. We just really want to kind of keep this dialogue going and, and hear your uh, input on the latest episode. Mm-hmm. Did you love this novel? Do you think that it belongs in the waste bin of history? We'd love to know. But until next time, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.